0: listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can contact us, send a text 2057, uh, email us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, here's a very interesting story in of itself about my next guest, because I'm sure listeners are aware that there's uh, an organisation, a wonderful organisation called Hobson Pledge. And which is the Pledge of One People, and we've had Don Brash on and interviewed him. Well, you may not know this, but he has beside him another spokesperson for Hobson Pledge. And you wouldn't know this because our guest is sort of a non-person, and I'll come to that. Why that would be so? And actually... This guest is the brains behind Don and, and the driver, as he describes her to me. And it's the wonderful Casey Costello. Good morning, Casey. Good morning, Rodney. And you're the non-person in all of this. So I hope you don't mind <laughs> me saying this because this is the strange world we find ourselves in where everything is standpoint theory or identity politics. And you don't fit the narrative. Don fits the narrative perfectly. Old white man, leader of the National Party, oh my God, and Governor Reserve Bank. So, of course, he would have the views that he has because he's an oppressor. He's a cis, heterosexual white man, but you are a young Vibrant, vivacious Maori woman. And so you don't fit the narrative. And so what I notice, you put out these wonderful emails, don't appear in the news. And by the way, anyone that hasn't subscribed to Hobson's pledge should because of Casey's emails alone. Because well, you tell me why don't you appear in the news?
0: I think it's it's exactly as you said, it's this group identity thing, and it's not your identity, it's it's the, literally the way you think. if you If you don't subscribe to this concept of Mari equals victimhood, Mari equals oppressed, then you you somehow it's almost like you forego your ethnicity and and one of the stories we always go back to when we launched hobson's pledge in 2016 all of the correspondence went out under my name with my contact phone number and we had um you know a reasonably large group of trustees at the time when we launched um and what not one media interview or contact to me at all there was nothing there wasn't a single phone call But actual camera crews were sent out to every non-Māori male trustee member. They actually went out to interview. Um, um, Mihinarangi Forbes was one of the ones that kind of really pushed the article about this racist group that Don Brash was setting up. I literally got ignored um, because, you know, you, you don't want to be openly attacking someone, so you, you just ignore them. And that was, so I never got a single phone call and that was kind of how we saw the the events unfold from that
1: point. How did that feel?
0: Um, I felt that it was, um, again, because this is going back, you know, we're seven years ago now, that we're sort of, uh, we were way. Further advanced in terms of our, you know, the separatist policies were being enforced upon us. Now, um, back then, I sort of thought, oh well, it's because I wasn't, you know, a big enough name or something like that. But then, as it sort of unfolded, it's just it's too difficult. So I kind of get confronted with two, two um, sort of uh, sort of two approaches with me. As one is that you're not really Marty, and we saw that happen in the house where. You know Willie Jackson can call David Seymour a useless Marty, or um, Karen Shaw is um, you know seeing the world through a vanilla lens. You kind of forego your Martydom if you don't agree with the narrative, or you just get ignored. And um, so the media,
1: the media are sexist and racist.
0: Yeah, and and that's that's basically what it comes down to is that it's because it's not. It's this, yeah, it's that group think
1: it's identity. It's so, that kind of, yeah. it's so hard to comprehend, isn't it, that to us who are brought up with open discussion, the power of ideas, the power of debate and discussion, it's interesting, a person's ancestry, but not determinative. And yet, in modern day New Zealand, we've traveled all the way back to a tribalist racist society, where Casey Costello can be has to be ignored because she's breaking our story.
0: yeah, and it's it, it's sort of it, it's become this defining you know, it's if you qualify to speak. You know, I I made a submission recently. And um, the Māori um, Select Māori Fair Select Committee had a um, closed committee to discuss submissions around the Māori Party petition about renaming New Zealand to Aotearoa. And the committee invited eleven submitters. Um, we were told, you know, clearly that it was not for public. Only the invited submitters were allowed to submit, and only eight made submissions. And I would hesitate to guess that we were probably the only ones that were opposing it. But when I was making the submission, I was asked specifically if I was Māori, as if that kind of differentiated my authority to speak. Um, Who did that? That was Rāwari Waititi. So, you know, as you can appreciate, he was, it was very foundation too. But, but what was interesting was another Labour MP, the um, MP that's um, taking over Jacinda's electorate, actually said at the conclusion, "Well, what, what does what you say matter?" And was <laughs> well, because I'm a citizen of New Zealand, really, I thought that was probably one of the foundation reasons why what I say matters.
1: It, um, it's, it's so, it's so stupefying and nasty. So. Stupid, so vicious, so bullying, so racist, and we get the abuse. yeah, and
0: and what what I've found too, is this, you know you can see how it becomes so difficult um to actually speak up because of the 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 viciousness of the attack. I recently watched an interview with um, um, on a podcast with um, Damien Grant and John Tamahiri. and as soon as the argument starts to you know lose traction for John Tamahiri, he immediately turns into a racist attack on Damien Grant. That you know it's it's um, that's typical of you white people that you know just want to steal everything, and you know it was that's the immediate go to position.
1: It's a lazy, it's a lazy thing too, isn't it? It's like you haven't developed an argument, you haven't developed the position, and so you launch into an ad homian. I don't know how to pronounce that, but you know what I mean? You attack the player, not the ball. Yeah. And you do it on a racial basis. How has it affected you in the Maori community and in your family standing out like this? For one law for all. Is it being like all Mary hate you? Or what is it? What's what's yes, that
0: like? I, I think I think that's the, the fact that I exist and that the fact that I have the support of my far now just proves this whole argument of race division um is is flawed because the fact that I exist, the fact that people like me, not just me, lots of people like me, um who speak out against this narrative of we're victims and we're oppressed and we're, you know, the fact that we exist and we're supported by individual now we we're, we're actually, you know, continuing, puts paid to the narrative that, you know, Māori speak under one voice and this whole, you know, co-governance idea is that we will have Māori who we'll all agree with each other because that's how we are, which is just totally flawed. How how do you suggest that we're going to appoint representatives without a democratic election process? Do I forego my democratic rights because somebody like Tuku Morgan wants to claim the chairmanship of the Entity A of Three Waters? Mm. Who, how how does he get my authority and my whanau's authority to represent us without a democratic process?
1: Oh, democracy sort of evolved. Um, tell me, so your family support you?
0: Yeah, and because it's it's the foundation principle that I don't claim to speak for all of Māori. No, I'm not saying we can't. all want this and we all want that, just like they can't. They mm. cannot stand up and go, we all want this. What, what they're doing is suggesting that they do represent us, and that, you know this is but they ignore the fact that nearly half Maori do not elect to be on the Maori role. Mm.
1: They're race grifters I love that phrase, "grifters. I think it's come from the United States but they're race grifters and race baiters, aren't they, for power? Yeah, Because they create a division where hitherto none existed. And they use that to establish themselves politically and to gain power. And, and,
0: they, and they avoid accountability for failure to deliver better outcomes. Yeah. Because Tell they me, always have the ability to blame someone else.
1: Mm. Well, all of this, of course, is music to our ears, but we want to try and understand who you are and what you're trying to achieve. And we're trying to understand what we're up against. But first of all, where did you grow up?
0: I'm an Aucklander. Um, I'm from I'm Ngāpui, so um, our close ties are to Northland, so um, Ngāpui, Ngātiwai, Ngāti Um But, yeah, Auckland grew up, educated Auckland. Um, Mum and Dad moved, or Mum grew up in a little place called Whakapara and... When they got married, they moved to Auckland and that's kind of well they actually moved to Matamata first briefly and then they moved back to Auckland and we sort of grew up in Auckland. Mm. And um and that's where I've I've did my police most of my police service in South Auckland. Um, you know, did,
1: did you grow up um, Maori?
0: Um, well that was the thing, is that we didn't know. We were just we were just us, you know. We And isn't we had, that crazy?
1: Yeah. Isn't that crazy? We, we had we had dozens and literally Maori kids at school. And no one thought a thing about it.
0: No. I mean, if anything, I was the envy because we always had cool places to go for holidays and, you know, we had the beach and the farm and we had all this sort of stuff. Like it was, it just never occurred to me that we were, um, you know, that, that there was an identity. You know, we had, you know, we, we, you know, very close to to my grandparents and we used to joke about when, you know, every time we had to go to marae and we had to sort of. You know, because I didn't like hooey houses and I'd say to mum, I don't want to sleep there, (laughs) that sort of thing. But we didn't know that that differentiated us. And because my dad was a big family as well, so we kind of, it it wasn't an identity. Even when I joined the police, it wasn't an identity thing. What year did you
1: join the police?
0: 86.
1: It's remarkably recent then, isn't it? Mm. So you joined the police and it wasn't like, oh, We've got a special person joining yeah. <laughs> us. We've
0: got a we've got a quota tick. <laughs> and I actually saw that evolve in the police. So I lived about 2000, 2001, and it was sort of this um, the cops that I worked with, but, you know, great guys who there was a slowly there became a differentiation that we need this, you know, and it was the same with you know women. Yeah, you know, we needed this quota. We needed this, you know. Um, you know, this number, it, it became less about merit and more about, you know, what, what box you could tick. And then we slowly started creating, you know, e liaison offices and um, these, um, you know, promotions based upon, you know, we need this demographic to be represented and that sort of stuff.
1: What attracted you to join the police?
0: Um, I... I don't. I think it was just that um, I kind of had this sense of, you know, I wanted to contribute something. I didn't want to be a um, um, an office worker sort of thing. And my my father was a journalist, and um, I tried. I applied for the there used to be an AUT six month sort of diploma thing that you that hundreds of people used to apply for and I didn't get accepted. So I was disgruntled and thought, well, okay, I'll go and do something
1: else. <laughs> so so I joined the police. Did you enjoy the police training?
0: I loved it. Yeah. And it was, I was sort of, um, when I, I never thought for an instance, I'd, cause I was, you know, this is back when there was a height minimum and a weight minimum and all this sort of stuff. And you, you had to, um, I never ever thought that I'd actually get in. So I never told anybody I was even applying because I thought it would be less embarrassing if I got rejected. And all the way I went through training, I kept waiting for somebody to go, you know, sorry, we made a mistake. You're out of here. So and the training. Oh,
1: good. And that you got a lot out of the training personally?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was then, it was just law, you know, you, your ability to physically take care of yourself. Um, Deal deal with people, deal with conflict. It was that you know, real practical sort of stuff. And Mm. from what I gather now, there's a lot more sort of theoretical and cultural and all those sort of things involved Mm. in it. Because the police was, you know, we were we were had this proud legacy of constabular independence. You know, there was truly without fear or favour. There was, you know, it didn't matter who you were. And I think that was probably a big part of where I shifted around my views because of the issues that I saw, particularly in South Auckland and the, you know, horrendous things that you see. And I kind of, I would go to mum and sort of say, look, this is, you know, I'm seeing these things. And my my comment I used to make was, this isn't Māori. This isn't what... This isn't this is, why are they saying that this is a Māori problem? These aren't Māori, these aren't people. And and Mamu, you know, sort of reassure me. And so you just remember Māori is what we know. Māori is Mama and Dangue, my grandparents. That's that's who we know. That's what it means to be Māori. And this, these bad people are bad people. They're not Māori bad people. They're just bad people and and you know, just do your job. And that was the sort of thing that I started to realise. And then when they started to say that we've got all these social problems um, and it's the ness that is the problem, I thought, no, it's not. It's There's much bigger things at play here. It's, it's not, mm. you know, culturally we are a proud, you know, that's, that's what we were raised to believe in and that, you know, we respect our elders and we, you know, those sort of things were foundation to what I knew to be Māori and we were Kind of trying to fix problems and saying that this is a Māori thing, and I kind of resented that, and um, and I didn't like the idea that we were all being lumped in together—you know, success or fail, good or bad—we um, were kind of the social problem that somebody had to deal with, and that was that felt wrong to me.
1: So the, um, you can go on the TVNZ and see, or the film archives—I can't remember. And I remember finding these wonderful documentaries that were done in the past. And there was a, just funny, there's a wonderful documentary about the dustman in Wellington, you know, running down the street in the 50s, picking up the, the, the dust bins. And it used to be the rugby players and that, and they'd get fit. Yeah, and then yeah, there was it. a wonderful documentary made at the time of the Mary Battalion. Coming home, and then a wonderful documentary about uh, Narumu. And it was done by um, Ikea Parada's husband, Murray Gardner, done in the 70s. And the Maori were so beautiful and wonderful. The men were strong and Proud the women were wonderful and upright, and it truly stunned me to watch these and they and they spoke in beautiful English and in beautiful Maori, you could tell, and the leaders were fantastic and You realize that as you say, there's been a social cultural destruction that is not colonialism. Oh. It's sort of like a breakdown of families, of communities, a promotion right. of welfareism, of me first, disrespect your elders. And as you say, that's not Maori. No.
0: And and that's the this why I say about this ability to avoid accountability for poor outcomes when these, you know, these elected representatives that are claiming that, you know, they're the, the truth, the light, and the way, and yet we're not getting better outcomes. No. And when you challenge that we're not getting better outcomes, the excuses that you know that colonialism, that you know, events that unfolded nearly 200 years ago are the reasons for failures now. Why are we worse now than we were in the 70s? Yeah. Why Did is the situation so much worse?
1: We don't need to go into what you had to see as a police officer, because I think we can dimly imagine it. And I can't imagine it doing it as a job and then coming home to my family did you suffer psychologically from what you had to witness and deal with
0: i i think that you you develop coping mechanisms and one of the things that i think occurs that that and i can't speak for other cops because we all have our own individual experiences but you can you you have your your barrier up and you you can deal with things but if you go to something and it's it gets personalised, it gets under your shield. So it might be the pyjamas that a a kid's wearing is the same as your kid's pyjamas, or it might be, um, you know, a a perfume on a table and a murder site is something that, you know, your mother has on her dressing table. It's the little weird things that Mm. make it personalise it. And so there was instances like that. and, And I think like any job that you do, when you start to get stressed or overwhelmed, all of the bad stuff kind of wells up and it makes it hard to deal with. And so depending on what support mechanisms you've got around you and, you know, how, how you, who you've got to talk to and those sort of things means that some cope better than others. But you definitely, I mean, I don't think anybody could do the job without having those dark moments and thinking this is just, you know, I can't believe people can do this to each other. And, and that's and that's part of the the struggle i have around this idea that you know we've got so many maori um, in prison but we don't talk about how many maori are victims you know we don't mm. we, we focus on one end but we don't focus on how do we reduce the number of victims we're really worried about reducing the number in prison but we're not dealing with how do we how do we create more protections so that we're not creating more victims and that's that kind of you know, we get swayed out of you know looking at solutions because it literally has become about who has the greatest power and influence and who's going to have the loudest voice as opposed to and, it's and not, how do you do it, that to young people?
1: It's not getting better either, is it?
0: No. And and when you're telling when you're telling our young people that they have every right to be angry and resentful, when you're actually encouraging a narrative that you're this way because they did something to you. How do you build a society on that? How do, how do you make, how do you, how do you instill pride and, and, you know, aspirational goals when you are basing everything on a foundation that you're justified and failing and actually we expect less of you?
1: It's a strange thing, isn't it? Because let's imagine that you did live in a terribly racist society And the chances of Maori were greatly diminished because of uh, prejudice. And you're wanting to figure out the best way to bring your child up. And you teach your child to look forward, not back. And you teach them that they can overcome adversity and that, yes, life isn't fair and you're going to have to work twice as hard to get there. And so you teach them this affirming positive, forward-looking yeah. philosophy, and here we are in not a very racist society, actually, if at all, but very little, and we're teaching our kids that, oh, you're not going to make it, you're a victim, what happened to you 200 years ago buggered you, and um life is set against you, and you can't succeed. And that's the story that they're getting told by so called leaders. Mm-hmm. And these leaders grow fat and powerful and lazy on the backs of this. Um, and, and I, it's
0: that, that's really true. That's really, and, and I've, you know, I've had so many instances where I've sat in the green room. Um, because, you know, they always invite me on to interview when they need someone to be a whipping post and, you know, everybody's to be, you know, attack because I dare to say that perhaps it's not um, colonisation that's the problem. And I've sat in the green room listening to highly successful individual Māori who are, you know, bragging about moving to the grammar zone in Auckland so their kids can go to, you know, the, the best school in Auckland and, you know, their you know, property in Waiheke Island and all those sort of things. But in front of the camera, when they sit and look down the camera, they talk about, you know, the struggle and the, not one of them stands up and goes, look, I've done this. You guys can do it too. There are no barriers beyond your willingness to work hard and commit
1: to an outcome. Because they know the game.
0: Yeah, and and what they're doing is robbing our young people of mm. the the idea that they aren't victims in this world. And worse, they're saying, just sit back because your economic prosperity will be handed to you once we win this battle or once we get control of that or once mm. we do that. You sit back and wait. And mm. it's, it's prevalent in Northland, the, 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 this idea that there is a real expectation that this massive amount of money is coming Um, and then everything will be fine, and it's
1: just not going to happen. No. Um, The media have a lot to answer for, don't they? Because we know our country and what's going on through the media, Mm. and they have got an ideological view, and they select the guests to go on the show as you say you're the whipping post and these other mary come on to it's performative to perform and none of it's designed to understand or to elucidate it's designed to reinforce this narrative that poor Maori, stupid and dumb ripped off by these colonialists kept under the thumb by Dan, Don Brash and his mates. And those that are appearing on those shows know that isn't the truth, but they say it, and that's why they're on the show. Yeah. It's totally performative. And yeah. I, I discovered that in politics, that you were sort of brought on to even a live show, and it was all pre-scripted, really, how people would play. I had a, I had a very interesting experience when I first turned up to Parliament in 1996, and it, it may have been 97, because the election was at the end of the year. And To Hanare, who I enjoy immensely, he had been there for, was it three years already, with New Zealand First, and so he was a character, and he knew his way round. And in a parliamentary debate, he and I got into this argument in our parliament. And it got pretty personal. And afterwards, we were chatting. And he said, This is great, Rodney. And I said, What do you mean? He says, Well, you and I are banging on like this because, you know, we're making for a show and we'll get reported. And you'll win your votes and I'll win my votes, right? And at the time, I thought, oh, that's a pretty cool way of looking at it, right? Because, yeah, when he and I have a row, we get in the paper and get on TV and people get to know who I am as a politician. But, of course, and so you play along. But how desperately cynical is that? Mm. And how how desperately sad is that that he and I were mates, but we'd put on this performance. And but the I difference was,
0: now is because the difference now though is that your side would get reported then as would his side. Yes, but now that's not what it is no,
1: That's right. That's true. That's very very true. Um, when you joined the police in 1986, Casey. Uh, was it still rare for a woman and maybe for a Maori to be a police officer?
0: I think we were still, I'm not sure what the percentage is now, but generally the police was about 7% um, female, 7 to 10% female. Mm. I think it increased, I, I think it got up to about 20% now. Mm. I'm not sure of the numbers, but back then it was about 7% Um but also we, there was, you had a lot more longevity in the police. Like I did 14 odd years and that was, you know, sort of average. There was, you know, and the, and the big difference was when I joined was you had, you know, you were put out in the incident car, the, the frontline car with someone who had three, four, five, six, seven years experience. Mm. Um, by the and time what about Maori?
1: Here, were, 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 were Maori common in the police force when you joined?
0: Yeah, well in South Auckland it was. I mean, I didn't, you know, but again, it wasn't you didn't even notice. It wasn't no. like I was talking about my old photos. But see, by the time I I left as a sergeant, um, by the time I became a uniform sergeant, you know, I was putting out two cops in a car that had a total of one month service. Gee. You know, so so what was happening was that the turnover was so high. You know, that, that was that burnout. Was just, well, I just It changed because, I mean, every job was the same because you remember you used to have jobs for life and everybody Mm. sort of joined their government position and stayed there forever. But they got rid of the government superannuation scheme that the police used to have and they bought in this new um, pension scheme that was sort of you could leave, whereas before you kind of, you couldn't leave without going out lame or loopy. So, um, yes, it changed and the, the whole demographic changed as well. But they did. They, you know, they had by the sort of nineteen nineties. That was ninety two. Was the traffic merger? We merged with the Ministry of Transport, so that changed the, the the look and feel of the police force. And then from there, started more targeting. You know, quota um, representation to be more demographically representative, sort of thing.
1: What did you do after the police? Pretty much everything. I kind of did
0: the usual, left the police, and sort of went into private investigation stuff because I was a detective sergeant when I left. Um, I I actually ran security for Parliament um, for about while you were down there as well. I was about oh three, really? Four years I was down there. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for keeping me safe.
0: Well, yeah, I was I, I was there when they introduced the um, X-ray screening stuff. So yeah. It was a very different world to work in, though, because you could do something like a, a, a lock failed on a door, and um, Helen Clark, who was prime minister at the time, got locked out of the caucus room because the you know the swipe card didn't work. <laughs> and suddenly, you become aware that you make front page news when you're in parliament yeah. without meaning to. Because, you know. so yeah, and and again, it's the same sort of thing as that, um, you know, that that idea that you know being Māori or being female holds you back. I have literally had every advantage in the world because I was Māori and female. Like, it's mm. just, you know, I've, I've, I've to suggest that it's a handicap is just naive to the extreme.
1: There, um, um, I think it became less and less. I turned up to Parliament in 1996 and there was still a, a lot of very naughty behaviour. Um, and the MMP changed it a lot because new small parties are, arrived and the two-party system uh, was busted and I realised that the two-party system, they sort of protected each other. They were big parties, political parties, and they all had their problems and so the naughtiness would go unreported and when I say naughtiness, um sexual indiscretions and drunkenness and, you know, just the larrikin behavior that you can imagine in that highly charged environment. And, but it still went on a bit when I turned up and everyone would say to me, oh, I'd say, this is amazing. And they say, you should have been here in the eighties, you know, this and such <laughs> and such. Happened. And I always had this thing that the security with those cameras everywhere, my God, they must see some things, right? Um, And so I ended up being always very nice to security (laughs) 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 because, you know, um, you were on camera and and I don't speak ill of the politicians in this respect. It's sort of what you expect on a, I don't know, a rugby trip because you have guys and girls who leave home and arrive in this tough environment in Parliament and it's hard work. They work long hours, and then they have a few drinks. And, you know, things can go pear-shaped very quickly. And there was security with cameras everywhere and looking on at things. It was a highly charged atmosphere. Oh, well, good on you for keeping me safe. I didn't get hurt when I was in Parliament. Um, now, tell us about Hobson's Pledge and my, how you got involved in it.
0: I... I and um met Don when he was um, leader of the ACT Party and um I, you know, we'd had some conversations and sort of had lost contact after that. And then he reached out to me sort of early in 2016 talking about this group um and what was my thoughts about whether there was some something that could be done around and he talked to a lot of people about this. Um Concept. And so we we had a few conversations, and I agreed that it was it was the foundation of um creating an organization that would give a voice to important issues that weren't given airtime or weren't given um and and the writing was on the wall in terms of going into the 2017 election because bearing in mind we'd um, we, we'd had a national government that had been in coalition with the Māori Party and we had um, the Marine and Coastal Area Act had been passed. There was, a, there was stuff that was sort of heading down this path um, that wasn't – and we felt it was important to go into the – you know, to, to do some work going into the 2017 election that would start the conversation, if nothing else, would give, make it okay – to highlight there were some important issues and that we were being divided. Um, and the 2017 election um, didn't go the way we'd hoped it to go. And, um, and now, then we went 2020 and, and we continue to, at a foundation principle, is to advocate for equality before the law. Um, that, you know, that that's the, the, the foundation of our democracy. And that's what we fought for. And what we've seen is rather than um, affecting a correction, we've actually sort of seen since 2020 an escalation of Mm. that agenda um, and dangerous sort of precedent for New Zealand. And, And the distortion of our history, this idea that, you know, because I'm a Māori and I speak really loud and I'm saying something very factually based that it must be true, we're not even questioning these statements that are being made when they're just yes. so, you know, like, you know, Māori own the water and, you know, this sort of stuff. And um, you know, we we entered into a contract that it was a partnership of equity. And you know, those those narratives are being spoken so often that people have stopped even challenging the foundation of that point. You know, it's it's just mm. like we're starting at this point. So everything else from there is justified because you know we had a partnership of equity. No, we didn't. We didn't have a partnership and we didn't have a partnership of equity.
1: Um how are you described in Hobson's pledge? Are you a spokesperson or what's your role? Yeah,
0: so so I'm the spokesperson and effectively I suppose you'd call me the, the operations manager. Okay, sort of, well um, we're you're on
1: you're listening to Reality Check Radio. Uh, you're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please give us a text at 2057. I'm talking to Casey Costello, who's the spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge, and a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady. I two things. I had um Ewan McQueen on, and I got Don Brash to buy a his book of him, which is an amazing book, and you can listen to it on replay, his interview. You will love it. Are you aware of his book called One Sun in the Sky? Yeah, he did a great job. It is a Very beautiful, good job. beautiful, beautiful book. And
0: given he's, book. Not, he's not a historian, he's not, no. you know, this is an individual who was really interested in yeah.
1: the it's truth. Such a wonderful, wonderful book. And yeah. what I said to him was it made me proud. To be a mm. New Zealander, and how many great men there were on both sides who had a big vision for our country and bequeathed us a great country, and now that history is destroyed mm. by our political race baiters. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. That was point one. Point two: I have Bob McCroskey on, and. I was gently teasing him that as a spokesperson for Family First, he wasn't doing that great a job. (laughs) (laughs) And he said that they had their 10-year birthday party, and he got a whiteboard out in front of everyone involved in Family First and said, here's what we have achieved. And he said, I left it blank. And the point of that is, it is a dark time for people in Hobson's Pledge and Family First and people that believe in reason and facts and all the rest of it. But you're doing, like Family First, an extraordinary job because you're keeping the idea alive. You're making the rest of us a little bit braver because. When you speak, we feel as though we can speak. And you're a role model because we like to be associated with successful, good people. And you are that. So even though you're not getting reported, you're giving us that little lift. And if it wasn't for you, it would be this big force against no opposition. Yeah. And then. The other thing I think is you're keeping the ideas alive and you're providing a place for the next generation to go to, to find out. And that's what I think your success is. You're keeping the ideas alive. And because you speak the truth, uh, I believe in the long run you will win. Because I imagine there'll be kids at school listening to this stuff and think, oh, I don't know, you know, and this Don Brash is such a bad man and I might just Google him. And they go to Hobson's Pledge and they sign up and they start getting your notes from Casey Costello. And, oh, this makes sense. Don't you think that's wonderful that you're doing that?
0: That's exactly, and it's a big part of what we've been writing about recently is that it's okay to have the conversation. It's yeah. okay to question it. It's okay to feel, and you're not a racist because you want to question us. And one of the things I often talk about is that you know one of the biggest challenges we have in New Zealand is not the Māori activist. It's actually... What what I call the park here a wash with guilt porgs. There's yes. this idea that you don't have, to, and I've had this conversation with people who say, "Oh, but Casey, you don't know. It's really hard for Mali. For who? It's not a if, you you can't class us all as because that in itself is racist. You know, mm. you you can't just say we're all you know incapable of achieving because of a shared ancestry. That's not true. So it's okay to have the conversation. It's okay to question whether this is the right path because will this deliver better outcomes? And isn't if it, nothing else. If we can make it okay to talk about, then that, to me, is victory.
1: Isn't that weird? Because we have these um, struggling families throughout New Zealand um, where mothers can't get support of fathers there's violence, there's destitution, alcohol, drugs, and despair. And then we have these elitists who, Maori, who sit atop all of this wreckage, and university educated, been through all the iwi organisations on huge pay, stay in the iwi organisations or head to parliament and swap between the two. And they are the winners. They are the people with power. They are the ones that can direct New Zealand and who the media fawn over. And they play the victim card.
0: Yeah. And how dare you say to someone who is, happens to not be Māori, who is suffering with mental health or is homeless or has got addiction issues or whatever, and say, because you're white, you are privileged and therefore not worthy of help and support. Mm. And because you're Maori, even though you earn multi, you know, six and seven figure salaries and have a luxury life, but because you're Maori, you can claim victimhood. How offensive of of a society. Mm. And, And that's the, 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 the stuff that gets me so passionate to suggest that I, who have the luxury of being able to afford to go to a private medical system would be able to claim Maori health support Mm. by virtue, not of my need, but of my race. How did we become that nation? How Mm. did we allow ourselves to become that nation that Mm. just by virtue of my race, I'm allowed to have this special advantage and claim victimhood, no matter how individually successful I am. How did we dare become that nation? I mean, just as abhorrent.
1: And we did it without a fight. Yeah. But Hobson's Pledge is there. And so I urge everyone to go to Hobson's Pledge and sign up to the newsletter from Casey and Don. It's wonderful to get it each week. And it's this little beacon of light and truth. and. um you sometimes wonder if they'll be allowed to continue because (laughs) that's where things are heading. Um, Isn't it strange, Casey, that your Tuku Morgans and your Don Tamaheris and your Willie Jacksons and all those revolving Maori MPs oscillating between iwi authorities and trusts and what have you have become the establishment? And that to be the radical and the revolutionary is to be a person who's got Christian values, believes in one law for all, um, believes in hard work, believes that you should be blind to race, and you're the radical. That's what a radical is now,
0: Mm. right? Yeah, it's crazy.
1: That um, the victim and activist view is the mainstream view. And they actually haven't taken New Zealanders with them. Mm. They haven't won at the ballot box. They haven't won with the debate or the argument. They have won by insidiously taking over the universities and therefore our media and by browbeating and making everyday New Zealanders cow. Because if there was a straight vote on all of this, it would be different result, would it not?
0: Yeah. And, and that's why this whole argument of 50% of the say by 17% of the population is so dangerous because there will be such a small number that will be claiming rights to speak for the 17% who will be self-serving and who will only be interested in their own...
1: Um, it's got this dreadful, nasty overtone that we can't discuss publicly, but we can on reality check radio. Very, very nasty, which is something from the slave days, something from terrible tyrannical regimes, whereby you have sort of like a one drop law of blood because. Mm. We've had this wonderful society where, and I think it was Maori. I think when I read that book, One More Under the Sun, I thought there were some great leaders um, from Great Britain and missionaries who were leaders, and they were just high-minded, wonderful people and of course, there were the scallywags, you know, mm. the whalers and and yeah. and and whatnot. And so they set a vision and did very, very good work. But the Maori leadership was so adaptable and able to see the opportunity in front of them. And from day one, The two races, being human beings, played together, worked together, had children together. And so we became the envy of the world of two peoples that had become one. Yeah. And so wonderfully, because I don't even think biologically there's such a thing as race. The difference, the difference is so, I mean, it's a pigmentation. It's nothing. And and even culturally, the difference between growing up Maori and growing up not Maori, non maori is infinitesimal. I mean, it might be the difference between growing up Dutch versus in Belgium, you know, or something. It's, it's, almost inconsequential genetically so culturally it's almost inconsequential genetically it's almost inconsequential the difference but we're all intermixed so people don't know whether you're Maori or not right they can see oh yeah it could be
0: it could be Indian
1: (laughs) right which I think is so wonderful right But we're now gone back to this idea of who's Maori, who's not. And you, in the South, they had a one-drop rule, that if you had a drop of black, you were black. And I guess we have that now in New Zealand, but it's in reverse. If you have a drop of Maori, you're Maori. And therefore, rather than being uh, put down, as in the South, you're elevated. You're entitled to things, to a different healthcare system, different scholarships, uh, different entry requirements, um, different ownership rules, different application rules. Everything's different because of that one drop. Isn't this disgusting?
0: Well, and and also that we've gone further than that, that as Willie said, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're a useless Māori. So, so your your Māoriness is or not a Māori based, yeah, or you're not a Māori. You know, you're a vanilla lens. You know, this is the sort of narrative that we're being forced into. That if you dare to to challenge or question this view that we have, um, then you forego your identity. You, you know, you you're not allowed to speak, and that's that's what. happens with this group think and this idea you know we keep being told that Māori need a voice. We're 26% of New Zealand's Parliament. We're 15% of the elected representation at local government and that precludes the special Iwi representation committees and all of the other stuff. So to suggest we don't have a voice right now is ridiculous but what they're saying if we they have to negate that voice because otherwise they'll be accountable for the fact that they failed to deliver better outcomes you know we we had we saw the matahi representation bill debated with maori mp after maori mp after maori mp arguing that it was necessary to have unelected representation because democracy had failed maori these are elected maori MPs claiming that democracy had failed maori how insane do we have to be to buy into this sort of narrative it's just it, it makes no sense.
1: Do you realise how important you are to New Zealand's future?
0: I no. <laughs> I think I think there's I'm not alone and I just have been fortunate enough to um, you know, have connected with Don and a group of really hardworking individuals who um, have given me a platform and an opportunity. Um, and, And I'm not alone. You know, there are others.
1: You're not alone. But let me suggest to you that you are very important because we're living in a time where we need leadership. And I feel that. Don's great contribution is to find you (laughs) because he can be in this present day wrongly and unjustly dismissed and made a cartoon character of. And they, when I say they, I mean the media and the politicians. They can ignore you, and they can disparage you terribly. But you and my observation are extremely tough, and you're still standing, and you're like a beacon for us. I, I truly mean this, Casey, because we... And when I say we, I mean non Maori people. We can buy into the propaganda that's disparaging us. And we can sit there and say, well, pff, maybe I am privileged and maybe I have got it all wrong. And who am I to speak? And so that's how shocking it is. And we've seen our mates go out in a blaze of glory, you know, because they said the wrong thing. But you, in the terms of the Willie Jacksons and the John Tamaheris, they can disparage you and they can try and ignore you, but you are being heard. And you're giving voice and strength. To us, but more particularly to a coming generation. And I think uh, the work that you're doing um, is the most important work underway. And we'll look back on it as a very amazing time because we're either going to live in a tribal, racially divided, poverty stricken, society, which we see all around the world, or we're going to be living in a prosperous, um, happy society where we can get along and recognise our problems and fix them. And that solution isn't going to come from our parliament because they're just playing along to the media. But it's going to come from your voice, actually, and those that you can encourage to stand with you. And I think we can all see this, Casey. And I don't think we should ever underestimate what it is you're doing, keeping that little flame alive. Because... We are losing. We've got, we've got Bob McCroskey's whiteboard, right? If yeah. you go back to Hobson's pledge and say, you know, let's write up our wins, a mm, bit slim when you consider the overwhelming steamroller that's occurred, but there's a beacon, there's a light, there's the idea, there's the values, there's people saying, no, that is not our history. No, this is not the way human beings live. No, this is not the way you have a civil society. And we know you've got the truth. Why? Because why else would they want to shut you down?
0: Yeah, and that's that's the I, I think the strength in what we've got is that giving people the courage. And you know, one of the one of the issues we're dealing with at the moment is this whole concept of racism and what is racism and And we've got an open letter going to the Minister of Justice at the moment because we've done a whole of official Information Act requests asking the different ministers for police and justice and what is racism? What is the definition that your ministry works to to determine what is racist or not? Because, you know, we've got a Prime Minister talking about this is dog whistle racism and, you know, this sort of narrative that racism is, you know, just part of every day. So what does it actually mean? And the Minister of Justice, who's responsible for the Human Rights Commission and the Race Relations Commissioner, has confirmed they do not have a definition of racism. They have a campaign to stop racism, but they could not respond to an Official Information Act request because they don't have to produce something that doesn't exist under an OIA. They don't have to create it. So they do not actually have a definition of racism.
1: Oh my goodness, the world's their oyster. There's no boundaries. Yeah. George Orwell was, was naive. He <laughs> uh,
0: was actually quite but, positive, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't be amazed, though, listeners, because we've got a prime minister that doesn't know what a woman is. So he doesn't yeah. know what a woman is, doesn't know what racism is, doesn't know the articles of the Treaty of Waitangi, doesn't know what climate change is about. Uh, but they're so s- clear. In their certitude. Hobson's Pledge, ladies and gentlemen, please go to their webpage, uh, Google it, or what is the what is the site, uh, Casey? It's
0: Hobson's Pledge, Hobson with an S pledge.org.nz.
1: It's wonderful. And support them. Just go become a subscriber, make a wee donation. It's an investment into the New Zealand that will bequeath our children's, children's children. And that's how significant this is. And yes, we can all sit on the sideline and groan and moan and say how stupid it is. But if you do that, you're the stupid one. Because what you need to do is understand what we're up against. And we need to join together and support those who are prepared to battle for us and join them in that battle, to live in a society that is blind to colour, that each New Zealander is equal before the law. That's what Casey Costello stands for. And Casey, it's so wonderful to have had you here this morning talking.
0: Thank you very much,
1: me, Ron. I appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you back because you're so wonderful. (laughs) That was Casey Costello, Hobson's Pledge. I always want to say Hobson's Choice. It's Hobson's Pledge now we're one people. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Please text us 2057. Uh, that'll get through to us, or inbox at realitycheck.radio. We love having it, and I'm going to read out texts. I always read them all. I always go to the emails. I'm struggling to keep up, but I love I love the feedback, and we're going to get better at handling it, but... Believe me, we love it. And I pass it on to the guests. If you address something to the guests, do go to Hobson's Pledge website. Uh, Thank you for listening. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.